just rose up in my heart how important it is that the day in which we live that we live out of our spirit that we walk not as mere men but we live out of our spirit man and the only way that we're going to gain the strength and walk in the strength that we need in this day is by feeding on the word of god doing the word of god meditating on the word of god spending time in prayer fellowshipping with other Christians because there is a bombardment in the world. There is a bombardment that's going on against people's minds to get them to quit, to get them to fail, to get us to be discouraged. But these are the most exciting times really that we've ever lived in. We're going to get to see and we are seeing unfold in front of us prophecy and things that, the, that uh, Jesus told us would be in the last days. And the world is going to get rough and rougher. But for us, for those of us who are in Christ, it doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. God never promised that, but he did promise that we would live as overcomers. He did say that the greater one lives on the inside of us. So there can be bombings all around us, but the church can live if we will live from our spirit man can live in peace and love people and have the joy of the lord hallelujah hallelujah so let's lift up our hands this morning let's just rejoice and thank god lord we thank you we thank you for who you've made us we thank you lord for the promises of god we rejoice hallelujah jesus is our lord jesus is our savior we need not fear hallelujah we need not cower in fear but lord we can not only rise up for ourselves but for others that surround us hallelujah for others that are around us we can love them and we can minister to them hallelujah thank you lord thank you lord we love you jesus you are our lord you are and we thank you. We thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you for each person who's here today, Father. That each heart, each life, each family that's represented, you minister to each one, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. But before you're seated, why don't you introduce yourself to somebody and give them a warm welcome and God bless you. Amen. 
And uh, for those of you who are worshiping with us online, we're so glad that you have joined us. And uh, we know that you're going to be ministered to today by the Word of God. Amen. Thank you, Lord. I'm just letting everybody get it out of their system. Some people have a greater need for fellowship and hugging and all that. Have you noticed? Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If you're visiting with us today for the first time, we're so glad that you're here. And uh, there's some connect cards in the seat pocket in front of you. If you wouldn't mind just filling one of those out, dropping it in the offering as it passes, we would appreciate uh, just knowing that you are here and if there's anything that we can do to be a blessing to you or to pray with you about, you can let us know on those connect cards as well. So uh, just a few announcements of a few things coming up. Uh, first, our ladies' Bible study is this Tuesday night here at the church at 7 o'clock. And we always have a wonderful time together uh, studying the Bible and then also we always have a really rich time of worship and prayer together. And so if you've never joined us before, we would love it if you would join us, at, ladies, at 7 o'clock here at the church. And then a week from today, Sunday, uh, the 29th, right, Karen? Thank you. The 29th, uh, next Sunday night, we're going to have our family fall festival. And it's something that we have for the whole family. We have fun stuff for the kids to do. And um, uh, we have uh, things for the teenager. We have a thing called a mechanical uh, surfboard. And, uh, you know, it can go at different speeds. And um, even, pa did Pastor Chip break that last year? <laughs> we were wondering about the height capacity on that, but anyway. Um, but they have a lot of fun. All ages have fun. And um, we're having this year, we're also having a chili cook-off. So bring a pot of chili to uh, be judged uh, by our infamous judges, still to be determined. And, um, and then we'll share that chili with everybody. And then also, uh, you could bring a side dish to eat. So we'll have uh, some food. We'll have fellowship. Last year, I think I mentioned this before, but we even have um, like a dance-off thing. And ages two through, Miriam, will you stand up? Miriam, I won't tell your age. But she's anyway. But Miriam was out there just dancing away with the dance off and keeping up with those little kids too. So anyway, we have a lot of fun and um, a great time of fellowship. So please plan to join us. It's from five until seven o'clock next Sunday night. And then um, just to have on your uh, radar, the second Sunday of November is our international family meal. And um, we just ask everybody to bring um, uh, a dish maybe of your region in the United States or somebody, someplace in the world uh, where how uh, you might 
Although I know the world doesn't celebrate Thanksgiving, but maybe your family was American and they were living in another part of the world. I don't know, but just everyone has a different dish that they have at Thanksgiving. And so we ask you to just bring, bring that dish and a dessert or one or the other. And we always have a plenty of food. Um, be sure to bring some family members with you. It's a great opportunity to come to ch- bring them to church with you. And we always have just a, a great time of fellowship. And that will be after the service right after the service. And then, um, uh, let's see. Uh, I'm gonna let you know, we'll do uh, the Samaritan's Purse video right now. We do this every year with Franklin Graham. Um, and in the back of the auditorium, there's some boxes for you. You can fill a shoebox. And um, we appreciate Franklin's ministry so much. They send these shoeboxes around the world. And so they're gonna run a video right now that gives a little bit of... Um, vision and information about that ministry. Three, two, when that shoebox is open, they're overjoyed. You can see them shouting, jumping. Oh, look at how much they are excited. This is the first time those children are receiving the shoeboxes. They are so happy. You can hear the laughter, you can hear the cheer, that excitement, it goes and goes and goes. Right now we're in Ukraine, and today we've given out the 200 millionth shoebox to a little girl here, so it's a lot of fun. It's a privilege for us to be able to come and to help the people as much as we can. Every box is important, because every box is an opportunity to tell a child about God's love, about His Son, Jesus Christ. There's so much joy that one gift box can give. They really experience the love of Jesus. At Operation Christmas Show, we celebrate something as simple as the shoebox because God uses it to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We got a full box on This is such an amazing time. We're so happy to be here. This shoebox gift will impact a child's life all year round. We never dreamed we'd have an army of men and women who would come to make this program happen. This is what it's all about, telling others about Jesus. These shoeboxes go into 120 different countries where pastors and missionaries are going to use them to bring the gospel to kids. So you may think it's just a simple gift at Christmas time, but it's the gift of the gospel, the story of Jesus Christ. When that shoebox leaves that distribution center and it goes around the world, that's not just one person. That's the body of Christ joined together, delivering the good news of the gospel. They go by plane, they go by ship, they go by riverboat, they go by camels, they go by motorbikes. And these boxes go to some of the most remote areas of the world. And every box counts. After receiving shoeboxes, children are invited to participate in the Greatest Journey Discipleship Program. These children have just completed 12 lessons in the greatest journey. I believe that discipleship is the key and they are now followers of Christ. They will tell their friends about Jesus. My name is Gladys and I am nine years old. My friend Kemi told me I needed to go with her to church. I wanted to teach her about the word of God. And when she came to my church, She received a gift box. For a long time, I asked my mom for a blanket. When I opened my shoe box, 
I found a blanket in it. When I came home, I showed it to my mom and she said it was great. I told her about Jesus. Now me, my mom, my grandma and Kemi go to church together. I am certain of one thing. God is my savior. Every box counts. Every box touches a child. It's like a snowflake. There's not one shoebox that is the same. And we are reaching millions of children with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you get the heart of the child, you will reach the heart of the parents, you will reach the heart of the family, and then you will touch the community. We are seeing churches being planted, and more and more churches are being built. We will do whatever it takes to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. That gift box is the beginning into their hearts. Isn't it incredible how these gifts touch the lives of these children? The joy, the smiles, it changes lives. Every year we see tens of thousands of children discipled. And we couldn't do this without you, so thank you for packing the boxes. Thank you for praying for these children around the world. God bless you, and keep packing those boxes. Amen. So you can check with Dean back at the table in the back uh, after the service this morning. And I encourage you, maybe there's some people at your place of business or some neighbors that would also like to be a part of this. You know, even a lot of times, people who aren't Christians will get involved with something like this because people just like to help somebody else, and especially when they know it's about children. And that also can be an opportunity for us to share the gospel with them. We, we always tell our neighbors about it. So uh, check with Mr. Dean in the back and he will help you. Then uh, one last thing we want to let you know, uh, know about is on Sunday, December the 17th in the evening, we are going to be having another Christmas concert this year. And we're really, we're just super excited about the concert we're going to have this year. Um, it is going to be uh, the one of the singers is going to be Daniel Rodriguez and we're going to show you just a little bit of a clip of some some things that he has done uh, he's known as the singing policeman and um, and then Leon Lacey who we are so glad I, Leon I'm, I met you before uh, but I didn't know everybody has heard Leon's music. You have all heard it, but you just didn't know the man that composed it. And it was it was Leon. So I familiarized myself with um, just the wonderful music that you have seen in um, uh, uh, movies and different productions and by very, very famous people. Uh, Leon has done much of, if it's beautiful, now if it's not beautiful, Leon didn't do it. But if it is beautiful, he did it. And so he's gonna be bringing a 24-piece orchestra and several singers. And so, yeah, it's going to be beautiful. So we're going to play you. Uh, why don't you show me first that, show me the slide of Leon. You know, we can't show Leon singing because Leon doesn't sing. Leon's the guy behind it all. And so, but here's a picture of him uh, at one of his concerts. I liked this picture. And uh, I, I texted that to Adam Webb, that picture, and Ryan, they didn't give it to you, Maria? Shame, shame on them. They get too many text messages. The bosses got lost. Anyway, then we'll play the clip of, do you have the clip of Daniel? 
singing? Oh, okay, excellent. We'll show you the clip. Daniel's gonna be one of the singers that's gonna be joining us uh, that evening. So we're gonna show you a clip of Daniel. When I am down and oh, my soul so weary when darkness comes and my heart burden me, then I am still and wait here in the silence until you come and sit a while with me. You So that's just giving you a, a taste of what we're going to have that, um, that Sunday evening. And it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to invite people to come to that and a great outreach as well. Praise the Lord. It, we're going to invite the ushers to come right now. And we're going to take up our offering. And as we do, I'm just going to read a few scriptures. The first is in Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. One person is generous and yet grows more wealthy but another withholds more than he should and comes to poverty. A generous person will be enriched, and the one who provides water for others will himself be satisfied. In 2 Chronicles 31, 12, God's people faithfully brought in the contributions, tithes, and dedicated gifts. And then lastly, in Exodus 35, 5, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord, everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering. Let's pray. Lord, we are willing. We not only uh, offer ourselves and our lives as offerings to you, but Lord, also as we bring money today, as we bring our offerings to you today, we give it as unto you, Lord. The first fruits of our increase, we do it to honor you. Jesus, we worship you. We thank you for taking care of us, for taking care of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Once you've been given the chance to give in the offering, would you stand and worship with us one last time?
You know 
just what to do, yeah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, we bless your holy name. We exalt the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's make her, let's make her confession. This is our year of Jubilee. We expect manifestations of the Holy Ghost and power. We believe for financial miracles and miracles of healing in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to teach this morning on certain things that are taking place and going on in, uh, in Israel. There are some things that we shared last week, which really my plan is to reteach last week's sermon and but to lay a greater foundation for the things that are taking place. We are living in a day that the world has never seen before. And I think that one of the primary things that would serve us well is to recognize that the days that we are in regarding God's plan for his people Israel and for the church. There are some um, foolproof scriptures that are given to us. In Matthew 24, Jesus is answering the disciples' question about end-time events. And he refers to Israel becoming a nation again, which took place in 1948. And he said, this generation shall not pass away. The generation that saw Israel becoming a state or a nation would be the generation that's raptured. And in Luke 21, Luke's account of the same explanation, he referred to the generation that saw Jerusalem surrounded, which we know respond, uh, corresponds to 1966-67, rather, the Six-Day War. So we are, our generation is the generation that saw both of those things come to pass. Now there have been things that have been wrongly extrapolated from those scriptures. There was a certain individual, primary individual, but others as well, that started counting 40 years from 1948 and said that Jesus had to come back in 1988. And of course he didn't. 
but they wrote another book to tell us why he didn't come back. And then said that he'd come in 1989. I'm not sure if there was a book that came out that told us why he didn't come back then. But folks, the simple reality is that there must be something more to a generation than just 40 years. Now what that is, we haven't identified yet. And it may be that God doesn't want us to identify it. But I firmly believe that we are the generation that's going to see Jesus come back for the church. Now with that in mind, I want you to join me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter, as is from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come first a falling away, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now the man of sin he's talking about is the Antichrist. Notice in verse 1, Paul is using as a foundation for the things that he's going to teach the Thessalonians as the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together unto him. There's two ways you can look at that. You can look at the, that as two separate events, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period and our gathering together unto him as being the rapture of the church. Or another way you could look at that as both of these things referring to the rapture of the church. Now, I'm not sure it makes a significant difference which way you want to approach that. But notice the deception that's taking place in the time that Paul is writing. And it, the Bible tells us the deception will be greater in our day. Notice he said that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us is that the day of Christ is at hand. There were people that wrote letters and signed Paul's name to them to deceive the church. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that seems to be pretty heavy-duty deception. And there were things that people would prophesy that weren't instigated or didn't originate with the Spirit of God. And it was designed to create confusion and spread fear to the churches as if the rapture had taken place and they had missed it. But he says that there comes a falling away first. Now this word falling away can mean one of two things. It can mean apostasy, wrong doctrine, 
And that's one of the things that Jesus said would be a sign of the end. Or it could mean catching away, talking about the rapture of the church again. Now, I believe, even though it can mean either of those two things, or have either of those two meanings, he's certainly speaking to the rapture of the church because he makes the connection between the rapture of the church and the Antichrist being revealed. Now keep that in mind, folks, because you're going to see that again and again. And then speaking of the Antichrist, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So Paul is trying to combat the wrong doctrine that many have picked up because of the deception of the devil through the letters that were written in Paul's name, not by Paul, but deceiving letters and doctrine. But he says that the rapture can't take place because of its connection with the Antichrist until certain things occur. Verse 6, you know what withholdeth, that word withholdeth means to hinder. So he's telling us the devil wants to bring the Antichrist onto the scene, but he can't do it because of the relationship that God has established between the rapture of the church and the appearing of the Antichrist. Verse 7, only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. So he says there's a departure that has to take place before the Antichrist can be revealed. Now what is that, or who is that, as Paul writes, that, that is hindering the Antichrist from being revealed? And who is that that must depart before the Antichrist can be revealed? Because he's talking about the church. Remember, God gave dominion of the earth into the hands of man. Some people will say the one who is withholding the appearing of the Antichrist is the Holy Spirit. But God didn't give the Holy Spirit dominion on the earth. He gave it to the church, to mankind in general, but specifically to the church. Now with that in mind, turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. John writes, I was in the spirit of the, on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And then it gives us the letters to the seven churches 
pick up the story in, ver- in chapter 10. I'm sorry, in chapter 4. Verse 1, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things that must be hereafter. So after the letters to the churches, these seven churches that are identified, John said a door opened in heaven. Now notice what happened to him. He heard a voice. He saw a door. But he heard a voice. And that voice said, come up hither. So John went up into what he saw according to the voice that he heard. Verse 2, and immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Now he said in chapter 1 and verse 10, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day when he heard the voice and the trumpet. So here where he talks about being in the spirit as he was caught up into heaven. It's amazing to me that John had his own rapture experience in relation to the book of Revelation. So he was in the spirit. Now that has to mean something different from what the condition that he was in in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, or else he wouldn't have made mention of it. But he's caught up into heaven and he begins to see and hear things that will happen in the future from his perspective or from his point of view. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, folks, I want to point something out to you. Here where it it speaks of the seven spirits of God, it's talking about the characteristics of the Holy Ghost. But the word, the, the number seven is the word of completion or the number of completion. And so he's saying that the Holy Ghost was around the throne in his full measure. Now, if the church is not in the, before the throne when the Holy Ghost is there, in his fullness, then one of the things of Scripture that we hang on to very closely has been changed. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will never leave you nor forsake you. But if the Holy Spirit is in heaven, in his full manifestation, and the church is not there, then the Holy Ghost has left them. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. 
Crystal is an element that has a distinguishing characteristic above any other natural resource, and that is you can't hide a flaw in crystal because of the way that it's faceted, very much like a, a diamond. Any flaws in crystal are magnified by the facet, not kid, hidden or covered up. Now John saw these 24 thrones around the throne of God. And the ones that sat upon the thrones were wearing crowns on their head. This has to be a representation of the church. And then it talks about the beasts and some of the other things around the throne. But skip with me to Revelation chapter 5. After it's found that there's nobody that's worthy to open the, the first seals to identify what will happen as we go forward, it speaks of the people that are before the throne, speaking of the church and speaking of the sea of crystal, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So this sea of crystal, the 24 elders, and all those others, that are identified as the, as the church, they're claiming redemption. So whoever the sea of crystal is, they've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now who is that if it's not the church? Revelation chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, a noise, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And then when I, another horse that was red and power was given to him, and sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So the first two things that happen after the church is caught up to the throne of God, the first thing that happens is freedom for the Antichrist to be revealed. Notice he had a bow, but he didn't have any arrows. Now, as we first mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the church is the one that's hindering or withholding the Antichrist from being revealed. But as soon as the church reaches heaven, power is given, 
for that revelation of the Antichrist to take place. The second thing that happens is war. The red horse is given power to take peace from the earth. I want to remind you of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. The asleep, he's talking about those that have died before. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For we say this unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds. Meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Both the rapture of the church is spoken of in detail and very specific ways. And it's always the same progression. The church is raptured and the Antichrist can be revealed. But we saw in Revelation two seals open. One was the Antichrist and the other was war. Now the war that's being spoken of in Revelation is identified to us in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company of, with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all of his bands, the house of Tagarma of the north quarters, and all his bands and many people with thee. He identifies nations that we know by different names, but regions of the earth that remain the same as in the days of, Jer of Ezekiel when he prophesied these things. Gog is the leader of Russia. Magog is the primarily the, the nations that were part of the Soviet Union. One of the things that all these nations have 
in common is that they have large populations of Islam. Now these coalition armies prepare themselves But notice how God talks about that he'll put a hook in their jaw. It's as if they won't have a choice in what they do. God will initiate it. And a lot of it has to do with the timing This takes place at the first, even on the first day of tribulation. Verse 9 of Ezekiel 38, Thou shalt ascend and come, come like a storm, and thou shalt be like a, a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands, and many people with thee. Verse 11, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are, at that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now, if the second seal being open paves the way for this war, against Israel on the first day of the tribulation period. They're given power. This coalition army of Russia and Iran and Ethiopia and Libya and some of the others that are mentioned, they're given power to take peace from the earth. Well, if they're given power to take peace from the earth, there has to be peace on the earth to begin with. And this will be their defense. I will go up into the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and without bars or gates to take a spoil and to take a prey. Verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and with all the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shalt thou say unto thee, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold and to take away the cattle and goods to take a great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say unto God, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people of Israel dwelleth safely, shalt thou not know it? And then it talks about how that they come down through the northern border, the mountainous region of Israel and Syria. And God unleashes climate change to the greatest degree. There's a great earthquake 
that destroys most of the armies that are coming down from the north. And it talks about how that God reigns. Verse 19, for in my jealousy and in the fire of my wrath have I spoken. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. Verse 20, and the mountains shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. And I will call for a sword against him throughout all my mountains. Saith the Lord God, every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood. And I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are there with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Thus will I magnify myself and sanctify myself. I will be known in the eyes of many nations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Verse chapter 39. The prophecy continues in verse 2. And I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee. I will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee upon the mountains of Israel. And I will smite the bow out of thy hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of thy right hand. Now here where it talks about the fire mingled with hail, hail mingled with fire and brimstone. It's talking about a judgment that comes not on just the invading armies. But judgment that's passed upon the nations themselves. As I said, these armies are primarily from Islamic nations. And God says that the hail fire, the hail with fire and brimstone will leave but the sixth part of thee. That means that not only are there the armies that come down against Israel destroyed. But the lands, the countries, and the nations that make up this list are judged at the same time. And only 16%, I think that's the sixth part, only about 16% of the inhabitants of these lands survive. Now, folks, when we look at what we know of terrorist nations and terrorist activities and organizations, I think we would conclude that they are the greatest threat to the world at the present time. But God, in one single stroke, decimates the religion of Islam and any jihad activity that would take place, it leaves only 16% of the nations left alive. Now we know 
we don't have time to go through all the, the uh, scriptures to read through everything about it. But we know that the weapons that are left behind by this coalition army of Russia and Iran and others, these weapons burn for seven years. That's how we know that it happens on the first day of the tribulation period because the tribulation period is seven years. And these weapons will burn for seven years for the entirety of the tribulation period. Now, folks, the point that I'm trying to make is that the world is not in the condition that it will be in for the tribulation period to begin in this war against Israel to take place. The list of nations that make up this coalition army are very specifically identified. And there are many nations that are left out. The conditions of the world in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is that Israel is living without walls, and living at peace. Well, that's certainly not the condition that we have in this world that we're living in. And with that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 83. Psalm 83 is written by a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. And it's unlike any other psalm. It's as if it was a prayer of prophecy. Psalm 83, a song or psalm of Asaph. Keep not silence, O God. Hold not thy peace and be not still, O God. For lo, thine enemies make an up, uh, a tumult. This word tumult means sound, literally uproar. And they that hate thee have lifted up the head. They have taken crafty counsel against thy people and consulted against thy hidden ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. For they have consulted together with one consent. They are confederate against thee. Confederate means in rebellion. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hadagarines, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, the Philistines with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher is also joined with them 
they have helped the children of Lot. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera and as to Javan, at the brook of Kisan, which perished at Endor, they became as dung for the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb, yea, all their princes as Ziba and Zalmunna. Now, folks, there's nowhere in the Bible that it gives us instruction to pray concerning the rapture of the church or to pray concerning the armies, coalition armies of Gog and Magog. You'd be wasting your time to pray because the things that will happen have already been established and foretold by God himself but there are other enemies that are identified here in Psalm 83. And instead of prophesying or dictating what shall be done with them, we are given principles of prayer to pray concerning them. And let's look at some of those principles. They're compared to the Midianites. Now, the Midianites were Israel's enemies, and they were their oppressors, specifically for a, for a certain period of time. Now, we know of the Midianites through the story of Gideon in Judges 6, 7, and 8. Now, the Midianites were, as I said, the oppressors of Israel for a period of time that was about 20 years. God's deliverance from the Midianites came through the hands of Gideon. We come upon Gideon and his story. Where he's threshing wheat behind a building and an angel appears to him and calls him a mighty man of valor. Now at the time that Gideon, the angel appears to Gideon, Gideon is hiding from the Midianites. And he certainly doesn't see himself as any chieftain or warrior by any means. But God puts him in position to bring deliverance to Israel. And 
and God gives him an army of 135,000 people. But then God tells him that's too many. He said, if I let you war against Midian with that many, you'll think that it was the size of the army that did the trick. So he gives people options to get out of being in military service. One such option was just, God said, tell everybody that's too scared to go that they don't have to go. And something like 22,000 of them bailed out. And there were some other things that took place. To weed out the army. Finally, they get to the place, the final cut. And it comes down to the way that they drank water from the stream. So he's finally left with 300 against a Midianite army that's over 140,000 people. Gideon obeys God. And he defeats his army of 300, defeats 140,000 plus Midianites. Now I think it stands worth recognizing how that God doesn't just involve himself in the defeat of Israel's enemies, but does it in such a way that nobody can deny that it was God himself that did it. That will take place in the army or the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 just as much as it did against Midian. But Asaph's prayer is in 83, Psalm 83, verse 9. Do unto them as unto the Midianites, as to Sisera, as to Jabin, as the brook of Kidron. God's going to do something and operate in such a way so that there'll be no denying that it was the hand of God that did it. Now, there's several things about this prayer that, or this uh, psalm that helps us to pray. One is it speaks of their crafty plans. Now, you may re remember that in Elisha's day, as the prophet of Israel, there was a, an enemy king whose plans, military plans, were revealed under the prophet, and the prophet told the king of Israel, or Judah, really, so we get, gather from that the experiences identified in the scripture for how God can overcome the enemy's master plan. Another thing that it mentioned is in verse 11, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, 
and all the princes of Zeba and Zalmunna. These were Midianite chieftains that were beheaded. So concerning the Midianites and God's work against the Midianites, the leadership of the enemy was destroyed. One other thing I want to uh, get to real quickly here. Verse 13, oh my God, make them like a wheel as the stubbles before the wind. This word stubble really means tumbleweed. Now you may have seen in old fashioned cowboy movies, tumbleweeds blowing down the streets and stuff like that. I think, or to me, I should say, to me, this just speaks to how God can work and will work to deliver Israel and to do away with their need for walls and bring them into peace and safety. It looks like Things are at the edge of blowing up into World War III. There are United States warcraft that have been sent to the Mediterranean Sea. China has sent warships to the Mediterranean Sea. Certain steps have taken place by Israel in retaliation to the terrorist attacks made against them. But you've already got protests and that kind of thing trying to turn the rest of the world's opinion against Israel. And it may well succeed. But the leaders of Israel are going to need our prayers to stay the course. And the question is, and one of the things that they're considering, is how do they deal with Hamas in Gaza while Hezbollah, which is on the northern border, with Israel, how do you deal with Hamas and not get Hezbollah involved? Now, folks, I don't know what the answer to that's going to be, and I don't know how it's going to take place, but I do know that it will take place. And it'll be necessary for it to take place for Israel to dwell safely without walls. But that is the condition that's mentioned several times 
throughout the scripture as the condition of Israel when the church is raptured. Psalm 83 deals with the hand of God removing the most violent enemies of Israel and they're in their within their own borders. It is my opinion that any arrangement or agreement that Israel has accepted that created this two-step, two-state solution, I know it's been in violation of the boundaries of the promised land that God identified in Genesis chapter 15. And the walls and the other things that are mentioned are a direct result of trying to negotiate with an enemy that exists for the destruction of Israel as a nation. I personally believe that Israel messed up in a big, big way but it's not too big for God to fix. And this Psalm 83, if it's acted upon, it's interesting to read from a historical context, but if it's acted upon and the principles of Psalm 83 are incorporated into our prayer lives for Israel at this time, Folks, we have an opportunity to make history. History that brings peace and safety back to the nation and the people of Israel themselves. And this is not just some light exercise that God will endeavor. This is something that he and only he could bring about. Well, we know how to pray and we're given the principles of prayer here in Psalm 83. Now think about how different that is from other prayers that we have in the scripture. I don't know of another prophetic prayer that we have record of. Now this is not something that Asaph makes mention of or takes care of 
in his own time. But he creates in a historical context concerning the Midianites. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives us a Holy Ghost prayer for the church. He prays that God would give unto the church spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and the exceeding power of his, exceeding greatness of his power that belongs to us as believers. It's a prayer for us to have something Psalm 83 is a prayer that we would pray something. Jesus said, when we keep our eyes on Israel, the fig tree and the other trees of the other nations of the earth, he said, we'll see the time coming when the church is caught up gathered under our Heavenly Father. So in Psalm 83, we're given instruction concerning the devious plans of the enemy. We've seen already that Hamas is willing to kill its own people and try to blame it on Israel. There was one Israeli medical facility that this doctor remarked that he had already, in the early stages of the war against Hamas, he said that from what he had seen as the result of the brutality of Hamas. It beats anything that you could see on a horror show or a horror movie. So there's no coming to agreement with these people. They're evil personified. So what does the scripture tell us to do? It tells us about their devious plans and counsel, their purpose of cutting Israel off from being a nation. They've made war against God. But this, script, this psalm tells us to pray that God would do unto them as he did unto the Midianites, which was wipe them off the face of the earth. To destroy their leaders and their leadership. To make them as a tumbleweed. Now a tumbleweed, however we've seen it in movies or whatever, I think we could all agree that it has no power. 
It may have energy as it rolls down the street, but it's without power. So folks, I want to lead you in a short prayer concerning these things. And if you want to stay after the service and pray more, you can. Maybe you've got a better way to pray about it than I'll come out with. There's still a little bit about this. I'm not satisfied with my grip, spiritual grip on the things that we're supposed to do. But we know enough to start anyway. So pray this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you to pray for Israel. We see in Psalm 83 that we're encouraged to ask you to deal with them as the Midianites. We pray that you would expose their devious plans that the truth would come to light and that the world would see the evil nature of these people. We pray against their leaders that they would be beheaded and power taken from them in every possible way. Now, Lord, we see that Hezbollah is on the northern boundaries of Israel and they're just waiting for their chance to come in and be involved in this war. So we pray that you would make them as tumbleweeds without direction, without power. Defeat their armies, Lord, of both Hamas and Hezbollah and whoever else might be involved in this. Spare your people, Lord. Bring a great victory to Israel and to the body of Christ. In Jesus' precious name. Now, Holy Spirit, we don't know how to pray in this as we ought to. So we trust you for utterance to bring these things to pass. Father, we further, further pray that you would persecute them with your tempest and make them afraid with your storm. 
fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever. Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that you, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the most high over all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Say it with me, the Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. God bless you, folks.